Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Hey there, everybody. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. So my question to you right now, before we get started, is what are you doing today so that you're really maximizing your time while you're listening to this podcast? Ideally, you're getting on your shoes, getting outside, taking a walk, going for a run, taking the dog out. Maybe you're commuting. That's perfect too. I'm also a huge fan of just getting in there and organizing a pantry or something. Okay, so let's be productive and get away from our desk and get away from staring at a computer screen for a little bit. Okay, so today Today, we are on episode 106, and we'll be diving into pediatrics, which we haven't done in a while, so I'm really excited about this one. But before we do that, I do want to get... And this is from Maura, and Maura says, I wish I had discovered this podcast at the beginning of nursing school instead of at the end. I recently graduated from my Associates of Nursing program, and this podcast has helped me to solidify the knowledge that I have gained over the past two years. As many of you know, what you are taught during nursing school often makes you feel overwhelmed. I love this podcast because the episodes are short and concise and packed with useful and easy to relate information. I also love this podcast because my nickname is Mo and some of my friends have begun to call me Nurse Mo also. Thank you to the real Nurse Mo. Thank you, Mora, or as I should say, Nurse Mo. And I'm just so glad that you found the podcast. Even it was late in your nursing school career, it's still beneficial because you're a lifelong learner as a nurse. The whole reason that I even started doing blog posts and recording podcasts was because I would see something at work and then I would go dive deep and learn about it. And then as I learned about it, I wanted to share that information with others because as you, I am also constantly learning. Okay, so as promised today, we are diving into a pediatric topic, Kawasaki disease. So Kawasaki disease is a condition that affects the blood vessels, and mainly you're going to see this in children about one to eight years of age, and it tends to skew a little bit on the younger side. Maybe a lot of sources I found were like four or five and younger. The most um, likely We'll see it in boys, but really it's not that much higher prevalence. It's a little bit over 50% more likely in boys, but it is especially prevalent in Japanese children and those of Pacific Island descent, though definitely it can appear in boys and girls, and it can appear in children of any ethnic background. 
So what Kawasaki disease does is it causes a very severe inflammation of the vessels, a vasculitis. And the problem with this is that it can affect the coronary arteries. And that damage can be so severe that it can actually cause permanent heart damage if it's left untreated. Now, this heart damage could be like myocarditis, pericarditis, endocarditis, all the dituses. It can cause arrhythmias. It can cause heart failure. And it can cause coronary artery aneurysms. And those are especially troublesome, especially if they get to around that eight millimeter or so size. And think about what eight millimeters looks like. Think about that on a little, you know, a little two-year-old's heart, what that's going to do. So children with those larger coronary artery aneurysms tend to have the poorest outcomes and they can even have, um, children can even have ischemic heart disease so severe that they need a heart transplant. So even though its cause is not fully understood, there is some evidence that shows it's an immunologic reaction to like a toxin antigenic or an infectious substance. If you look up carpet cleaner and Kawasaki, you may see some information. I don't know if there's any peer-reviewed studies about it. It's, I think it might be more anecdotal information that those uh, grocery store carpet cleaners that you rent, and then um, so you're not hiring a professional cleaner, but you're doing it yourself. Something about those professional or those rather those um, grocery store rental carpet cleaners have shown a link to Kawasaki disease. Again, I don't know that that's like a peer-reviewed fact. It may be more anecdotal and it may have to do with something either in the cleaning agent or, you know, do those things really get clean? Who even knows? Okay. So there are a lot of symptoms in Kawasaki disease. So a lot of times the workup for this condition will be the MD trying to rule out a lot of other things because it can look like Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It can look like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. It can look like measles, scarlet fever. There's a whole list of things that it can also look like. The good news is that once the Kawasaki is identified, it's typically very treatable and kids recover fine, um, especially when it's caught early. Now, if it's caught late and there's already coronary damage, that's a whole other story. Um, heart disease can develop, you know, at you know, a week or two after the disease onset. It can develop later in life as well. So the best course of action with Kawasaki disease is to identify and for the child to get treatment early on in the disease process. So we're going to use the straight A nursing latte method to go through the key nursing assessments and interventions for Kawasaki. Okay. So the L in the latte method is for look. How will the patient look? How will they present? What will you notice? What will they complain of? So kids with Kawasaki disease typically exhibit a common symptom of a high fever and bright red skin. Okay, so that's the nutshell snapshot, but we do get more detail than this. So symptoms will often present in kind of a predictable way. So the fever is typically that first thing that happens, and that can last about like five days-ish. The child at that time is probably pretty irritable. Nobody likes having a fever. They're probably pretty tired and may have some like colicky abdominal type pain. 
After a couple days of fever, the child may develop bulbar conjunctiva without any drainage, so you could be watching for that. And then next, what tends to happen is the child will develop an erythematous, I can never say that word, erythematous macular rash. That's It's mainly going to be concentrated in the perineal area, but it can be kind of just in the trunk area as well, but mostly you may see it localized in the perineal area. The child's mouth may now be very, very red, bright, bright red. Um, It could be swollen. The tongue could be a little swollen. You could have um, the palms and the soles of the feet also get very red and also get swollen. And then around the 10th-ish day of the disease, the skin starts flaking off. And as it flakes off, there's normal-looking skin underneath. And it's that skin flaking off that makes people think it could be Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So if you haven't learned about Stevens-Johnson's yet, that's fine. You will at some point, and it does involve massive skin loss. About half of the patients will have swollen cervical lymph nodes, and you may hear this disease also referred to as mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome because of the lymph node involvement that can occur. Other symptoms the child may experience include joint pain. So there's that rheumatoid arthritis uh, differential diagnosis, like is the joint pain because they have juvenile, juvenile RA or because they have this Kawasaki disease. They also may have ear pain. Their eyes could get very inflamed, very red. They could be vomiting and have diarrhea as well. And then there can be more serious complications involving internal organs, and that could be hepatitis. They could be having um, aseptic meningitis and high drops of the gallbladder. So it's estimated that about 20-ish percent of kids with Kawasaki will develop cardiac complications, and that's around one to four weeks after disease onset, though It is important to note that that damage that is inflicted on the heart early could show up later in life as the child ages. There's also a small risk of the child developing RISE syndrome, which we'll uh, talk about as we get into discussing the medications used to treat Kawasaki disease. So let's move on to A. How do you assess the patient? So assessing children, if you guys haven't started doing this yet, it is a whole other ballgame than assessing an adult. Children that are frightened, children that are in pain, um, especially younger kids, they're not going to willingly cooperate. They just don't understand what's happening, and they can't explain to you what's bothering them, and they don't really understand why you need to wrap that blood pressure cuff around the arm and inflict pain on them. They're just not really cooperative. So it's it's definitely a skill set that I admire greatly, people that can get a good thorough assessment on a child. I view it as almost magical because it really, there's a lot, this assessment skills with kids have to be absolutely, absolutely top notch. So as you approach your assessment of this child, the first thing that you should notice when you're looking at any kid, and this is, you know, typically the easiest thing to ascertain, is just to notice how alert they are, how responsive they are. If the child's lethargic, is not responding to the environment, that's a sign that they're probably pretty sick, and that should worry you. Um, The child who is listless, who lets you do a full assessment and doesn't kind of fight you or resist, that 
child um, could be very, very sick as well. Now, I'm not saying every child's going to fight with you when you try to take their temperature, but usually you have to, there's some, you know, there's some negotiating going on a lot of times. Um, they just don't lay there and let you do whatever. They're going to react in some way. So children that don't react, aren't responsive, very sick. Okay, so a child with Kawasaki disease, again, likely to be pretty irritable. It's painful. Um, Their joints ache, their skin's inflamed. So getting a full assessment on them is going to be a bit tricky, but some key things to assess for are their temperature. You would definitely want to get a temp on these children. Um, They often have a fever above 102. I've seen 104 or even higher. That is especially worrisome. Their skin's going to be reddened reddened, swollen. It could be peeling in some areas if that flaking has started to occur. Um, An EKG would be very helpful assessment to get. Um, It can affect the vessels of the heart like we talked about, and that can cause arrhythmias. So it's always a good idea. If you can get the child on a continuous monitor, that would be fantastic. Definitely want a blood pressure. You definitely want a heart rate. You could expect tachycardia if the child is very irritable, has a fever. They could be hypotensive because of um, a dysrhythmia that could be occurring. And just a general overall kind of view of how... Again, just level of consciousness is going to be one of those things with the kids when you assess them that's going to really just give your, I call it your nurse spidey sense, but your gut instinct that something is wrong with this child. So T, the first T in latte is tests. What tests would you anticipate the nurse practitioner or the MD or the DO ordering for a child that you think may have Kawasaki disease? So that EKG definitely would be happening most, well, I say definitely because I think definitely, again, I'm not a prescribing person, um, but I would think an EKG would be likely. An echocardiogram would be done if they wanted to evaluate um, if the disease has caused that coronary artery aneurysms, any damage to the heart. A CBC will show elevated white count, so leukocytosis. It could also show elevated platelets, which, which is thrombocytosis. And some children may have a normocytic anemia with Kawasaki disease. Inflammatory markers are often drawn. That could be your ESR, your erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or your CRP, your C-reactive protein, likely to be elevated in inflammatory states. The BNP is elevated when the heart is under stress, so they maybe want to look at that. And then ANA and rheumatoid factor could also be drawn to rule out the things like lupus and juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which could explain the joint pain and the rash. But if the child is negative for their ANA, negative for the rheumatoid factor, then they may start thinking, oh, maybe they don't have rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe they have Kawasaki disease. Okay. And then the child may need serum aspirin levels as the treatment modality progresses because they will be taking aspirin for most likely an extended period of time. So let's talk about that next. The second T in the latte method is treatments. What treatments would you anticipate being prescribed for this patient? 
So Kawasaki disease is treated with high doses of immune globulin, so that's IVIG, and aspirin. So the IVIG is used to help prevent those coronary arteries from getting really inflamed, really affected, while the aspirin is used to manage inflammation, help prevent those coronary arteries abnormalities as well, and keep that fever under control. If the coronary arteries develop aneurysms and the child has any risk of being um, hypercoagulable, developing clots, they may be on an anticoagulant. Okay, so the E in the latte method is educate. Always educating patients and families, key component of the role of a nurse. So it's important that family members understand that Kawasaki disease is not contagious. There's no need to um, worry about it spreading to other members of the family. They also need to know that if the heart has been involved, that child will need continued and regular evaluation through periodic ECGs and echocardiograms, possibly lab, lab blood tests as well. And if the child receives the IVIG therapy, then the child would have a suppressed response to vaccines. So adjustments may need to be made in the child's vaccination schedule. It's recommended that live, live viral vaccines be delayed for 11 months after the IVIG therapy. And then children over six months should get the inactivated flu vaccine. And then the family also needs to understand that aspirin therapy can cause a condition known as RISE syndrome, which can create terrible liver and brain damage in the child. So when you think about aspirin in children, we don't typically give aspirin to kids because of the RISE syndrome, but because it is a therapy for Kawasaki, you do need to be very aware of that. So I hope that helps you guys just with a quick clinical snapshot of how you might take care of these little patients. You know, if you come across a child in clinical with Kawasaki disease, you'll definitely come across a child with Kawasaki disease on an exam or a case study in nursing school. So before we go, the key takeaways, you know, if you just wanted to do a too long didn't read on this, it would be that Kawasaki is a disease that causes a vasculitis that can affect the coronary arteries. Symptoms, it's that high fever, that bright red hands, feet, and mouth, the peeling skin, also a key, and the swollen lymph nodes. Also that bright red skin in the perineal area, that is key as well. The treatment is aspirin and IVIG, and there's a risk for RISE syndrome with aspirin therapy. If I were going to write an exam question as a nurse educator, it would probably be centered around one of those key points. Okay, you guys, so we are early-ish June, and a lot of you are starting school soon in August or September, and maybe even some of you in July. So I just want to tell you about our digital planners. We have printable planners as well, which I've been talking about a lot. The digital ones just recently were completed. I'm recording this several weeks beforehand, obviously. So if you are an iPad Pro kind of person or an iPad person that likes to take your notes on your iPad, then you might really love having your planner on your iPad as well. So if you want to check it out, I will link to it in the episode notes and just easy to remember web address. It's on Etsy. So Etsy.com slash 
shop slash straight nursing. So go there, check it out if you're interested in getting a planner for your iPad. They are super cool. Okay, you guys, very happy to be here with you today. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about next week so you can be as excited about it as I am. Next week, we'll be back in the world of adults talking about taking care of patients with GI bleeds. And I have to say, one of the scariest days I've ever had as a nurse was taking care of a patient who was actively bleeding out. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how you are not going to be as scared as I was because you're going to be ready to absolutely face anything. So I will see you back here next week. You guys have a fantastic week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.